Welcome to Further Reading, Craft, Creativity, and the Writing Life, a podcast from the University of King's College MFA program. I'm your host, Gillian Turnbull. On today's show, we talk to Amy Fung. As a curator, Amy has spent much of her time in the art world, challenging the colonial practices governing institutional art exhibition. In 2019, she turned that work into a book titled, Before I Was a Critic, I Was a Human Being. The volume, published by Book Hug, examines Canadian mythologies of multiculturalism and settler colonialism. Amy was also the co-founder of Mice Magazine and the artistic director of Images Festival, and she has worked across many art disciplines, channeling her energy into criticism, visual art, performance art, and film, and she's now a PhD candidate at Carleton University. She joins us today to talk about criticism, performing your work, and collaboration in writing. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, I read your book last year when it came out. Uh, I just saw it on a table in a bookstore and was compelled by the title. And uh, and I've been thinking about the ideas raised in the book um, for the year since then. And then I reread it this week, which was a, re- a real treat. So I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about not, not just the ideas, but how you sort of went about putting this book together and how you work uh, in general as a writer, as a freelancer and a critic. So um, maybe we'll start with just some background. You can tell us how you got started in the field and what drew you to it. Um, the kinds of writing you've done and, and especially how that's intersected with your artwork and your curation work. Uh, okay. Uh, well, first, thank you very much for supporting local bookstores and picking up random books you don't know about. That's, <laughs> that's great. Um, so, yeah, so I began writing publicly or publishing uh, for newspapers around 20 years ago. Uh, when I was living in Edmonton as a young undergraduate student majoring in English. Um, at that point, being like a 19-year-old, I had no idea people were paid to write for newspapers. Mm-hmm. That never crossed my mind that like anyone can do it. You didn't have to be like a journalist in a newsroom to do it. Um, and so it was like a new weekly that was starting with uh, Ben Edmonton Journal. And I just, you know, like, like didn't, the absolute wrong thing of just like writing an entire piece and submitting the whole thing unsolicited. Mm. And uh, they were like, okay, like that's not how you do things around here, but this is pretty good. So we'll publish it and we'll pay you. Wow. So I was like, wow, like maybe I could do this. Um, so I freelanced for many years, not making enough income to actually live on. I've always had like a part-time or other job uh, to supplement that kind of income. Um, and so I mostly wrote for the local weeklies until my mid-20s. And then, you know, like I was tired of the local discourse and wanted to, you know, talk about things regionally, nationally, internationally, um, to the point where I began um, being more of a, a voice for the region in terms of visual arts. And that kind of ended up leading to bigger questions. And through those bigger questions, I realized I had to, like, try and figure them out through curatorial work. Um, and that kind of just snowballed into, I guess, where I am now, which is uh, a former art critic. (laughs) (laughs) 
Amazing how that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Full, cir- full circle there. Um, this book is is really a memoir, and it starts with your childhood, and then it dips back into your mother's life mm-hmm. um, before she had you. And, uh, you know, reconstruction is a very tricky thing and is dependent partially on memory, of course, but on many other um, devices that can either trigger memories or, or help kind of set the context. So when, when you were going back and doing some of that reconstruction and, and memory writing, what sort of tricks did you use? Yeah, I would say memory is completely false. Most <laughs> 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 it, it's, uh, it's, it's all fabrication. It's basically the closest I'll get to writing fiction. Um, so for my own like childhood memory reconstruction, um, I did talk to my mother about it because uh, um, she was there for most of it. I mean, you know, her memory's not no better than mine, but you know, <laughs> kind of piece it together. And also, there's like some, you know, fragments of images that you just have in your mind, or stories that are told repeatedly that you know you just like keep. And whether that's true or not, you know, you you roll with it. Mm-hmm. But for her history that I was reconstructing, it was like a sit down, you know, like interview, right? Like I think I include a scene of that in the book where we're just like having lunch and I ask her, you know, about like dates and names and, uh, and movement um, sequences of, you know, where she went after here and there. And again, it's all, you know, like based in memory for her. Um, And so those memories, how reliant they are, like, I don't know. I don't know how important that is, um, you know, to be honest, in terms of uh, the veracity of memories um, because if they are real on some level, then how can they not be real at all? Right. Um, but I would say those are the hardest parts of the book to write. Hmm. Those are the parts that you need to go over and over again to make sure that you were writing. Um, the details that you were including in those were important to the story and not just details that you had because they were unique. Right. Right. Yeah. Like I think most writers come up with that problem where they want to include something because it's so unique or so (laughs) different or what a turn of phrase, but you're like, but that doesn't tell you anything to the rest of the story. They're just like, you know, like flips and blops. Yeah. More like journal writing than actually trying to create a narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So those, like, um, those are the hardest parts of the book to write, um, probably because they were so, journalist or a uh, self journal self journaling like mm-hmm. um yeah i mean like like when i read it now i feel kind of detached from it because i was like maybe I, that's a, that's also how i had to write about it like i was writing about another person mm-hmm. you do this with your mother too you refer to her in the third person for a stretch of the book was that a conscious stylistic decision on your part um Maybe it was, uh, I don't know, stylistic or just like a, it made it made the storytelling easier or, you know, it, it flowed more. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say earlier drafts of the book, I really teetered between first and third person a lot. Even and for yourself? Even for myself, yeah. Okay. Um, as a certain draft, I think the book just blended both of them at various points. Like stories would flash in between. Mm-hmm. But I think in the end it was... Um, the feedback I got was that it was just too confusing. Okay. 
Um, so I was like, okay. So I think my editors or my publishers were like, just pick one and pick the first. <laughs> I was like, okay, all right. Um, yeah, let me just pause here on, on that note too, because you, you mentioned a lot of um, early readers in your acknowledgements and, uh, and also in telling us a bit about your research process for the book. Um, so to what extent uh, did you depend on, on that feedback and by extension change things based on that feedback? Is that how you like to work as a writer? Uh, I mean, for the most part, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Turning something over 48 hours, you don't have that time. Sure. But I felt like, oh, I have like 18 months to write this book. Like, that's like a luxury of time I've never had before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I write quite quickly. And so I'm like, okay, I can probably, you know, hit m- various drafts and get input in this. Because this book, I mean, while, you know, it's funny to call it a memoir, it's, it's so many different people's stories in it as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I really wanted um, for me to, I mean, for my own uh, sake, to be able to at least offer a draft to whoever had a speaking part in the book mm-hmm. for them to at least read that section and, um, you know, either like sign off on it or be like, hey, can you change that? Or, you know, I don't like that or, you know, whatever. Um, and so that took a lot of time and also, you know, provided a vast amount of feedback for me to incorporate, which, you know, like while tedious was also the most, um, generous gift a reader can give you. Mm -hmm. Um, I also worked with uh, several writers throughout the process or several readers, um, who I guess I just knew and trusted, um, as like fellow writers and, you know, like kind of between the different realms of, uh, you know, art and responsibility that I was talking about to give me feedback. Okay. Sometimes I even just like give them access to my Google Doc as I was writing and they would just give me like live feedback. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was a very uh, transparent process huh. in terms of um, that. And I mean, you know, like not all the time, but, you know, for like periods of time when I was open to it and then you close it off again and you write and rewrite. Um, but yeah, like I... I mean, this is, you know, like has been said a thousand times before, but like writing is rewriting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like when someone gives you feedback, you don't always have to incorporate it. But, you know, if it challenges you, if it sticks with you, if you don't know how to like, you know, like fix it, those are like the, those are the really good points, right? That you have to sit with for a while. Mm-hmm. And you have to go back and like, you know, like, okay, like what does this person mean? And what did I mean? And, you know, how did they come to that conclusion? And um, yeah. It was, um, it was, I would say that's probably what took the bulk of the time. I, I wrote the draft like in six months and I had a year of editing. That's amazing. And and a very bold move on your part to be uh, bringing everyone into the process that way, because it's a very vulnerable thing to do, right? Uh, to yeah, I don't know how I could not. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we would all aspire to that. Um, but deadlines being as they are and writers being often procrastinators, (laughs) it becomes less and less feasible as time goes on. So it's, you know, really admirable that you were able to pull pull it off. Well, I mean, you know, like I would say not everyone um, responded. So, you know, and also like, you know, like some, like it was, I was also going through a breakup (laughs) during that time. Oh dear. You know, like getting drafts of the ex uh, was... Uh, was difficult because yeah. I didn't. Yeah. 
So what would you do? Like, how do you sort of regard the ethics around this? If someone said, I do not want this in the book, or I don't see things that way. And yet you feel it's integral to the story. Like, how would you navigate something like that? I mean, if they told me before I went to print, um, I would obviously take it out. If they're not okay with it, I take it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has happened where, you know, like even with um, articles I've written and interviews I've done, where, you know, like, so most interviews or most articles that I write for uh, magazines, if I'm, if I'm talking to someone, if their voice is in it, I always give them, you know, like uh, a look and a sign off because I'm quoting them, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm using their words. It's, you know, it's, I don't think, I mean, like some journalists are really hard about it, but I'm like, it's, it's like, it's arts journalism. It's a very small community. Yeah. You kind of have to, you know, let them be okay with it. Um, and I, um, you know, want their approval for how I'm using their words, but it has happened where after it comes out to print, after they've given me sign off, they're like, I'm not okay with it anymore. Oh dear. And so you're like, okay, like, you know, um, I can't change what's been in print, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I hear you, you know, I, all we can do is take off the online copy, I guess, mm. or you know, like address it if we, you know, talk about it. But um, yeah, I think, you know, like whenever you're working with other people's words and lives, you have to respect their autonomy over it. But as like a, as a nonfiction writer, like how did their lives and my life and my life intersect, right? Like that's kind of the... Um, that's the that's the blurry part I think that maybe you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. But if they're really against it, I can't go through with it. Yeah. But um, what do you do when they're not okay with it after it comes out? We yeah. Have, we have conversations, or I want to have those conversations. Not everyone does. Right. I mean, it must help that you've talked to them in advance and made them part of that process and and I think that would be a good piece of advice for anybody trying to bring others into their um their writing right to just right from the start say as much as you can given whatever the story is to just say you know you're here you're with me in this in this piece and I want you to be aware of how things are going to go so you know I, I I just really admire that you did that and and kept it up all the way through the process I tried. I don't know if it was successful for every single one, but, mm-hmm. you know, I can only try. Yeah. So um, let me come back to this uh, issue of, of structure and um, and the essay format. So I imagine given that you uh, are used mostly to writing short pieces and you're then faced with this big project of, of the book, that structure was really important to you and and you probably put a lot of thought into it though I don't want to I don't want to assume anything um but uh I'm just curious how that went for you because it is laid out roughly chronologically and Mm -hmm. yet you're grappling with big themes and um lots of different characters lots of different places and big ideas about nationhood and belonging um that's crazy (laughs) (laughs) everybody should read this book by the way (laughs) um but how did you approach that when you were thinking about the structure and and setting out to piece it all together uh yeah so i you know like a type style had the whole structure planned out you know like before i wrote a single word um and then of course as soon as i started writing the whole everything you know went to the garbage can (laughs) 
And so I was like, okay, like, you know, like forget about the structure, forget about the product, you know, like just write. And so I, being a freelancer, needed deadlines. Mm-hmm. And so I started agreeing to doing readings before the chapters were done. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, to like, you know, like self-motivate, I guess, to be shamed into writing these things so that I could <laughs> read, um, you know, in a month's time. And so, yeah, the first, I would say half dozen or uh, yeah, half dozen pieces, I would say, were written in that style where I'm like, okay, like I have a reading coming up or I have like an event or a talk where I agreed to read, you know, unpublished work. So I better get cracking. Um, and so I would say like when I had maybe three quarters of the text written is like, just like, you know, like as pieces as each piece is two to 3000 words, which is just slightly longer than what I'm used to writing. Okay. And so I just took it as a series of writing different essays. Um, and, you know, I remember at this point they were kind of bleeding between first and third person. And so I think, um, after I had the bulk of it done, I sort of, you know, kind of like laying them out, you know, like as little, little as like, like I need visually like to write, you know, put it on pieces of paper and put it out on the table and be like, okay, like what's happening here? What's happening here? When is this happening? You know? And, and then it was like, oh, like, why don't I just do this chronologically? Hmm. And that was also some reader feedback too. They're just like, maybe, you know, like, have you thought about structuring the book chronologically? Um, cause at that, I don't think it was for the longest time. I think it was like kind of all over the place and I was maybe doing it geographically or maybe going backwards at one point, you know, like you, you try things out, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. And then when I decided to go chronologically, then I was like, okay, I'm missing a gap here. I'm missing a gap there. You know, I've got to write this. I got to write that. And so, yeah, it kind of got cobbled together that way. Wow. No. And then the intro and epilogue was kind of flowed out very easily from there okay and did that that physical approach to it laying things out on a table and seeing it in front of your eyes like that did that really help uh, pull it together for you uh yeah I mean that's also how I curate and program as well like whenever I'm putting together a program or a show I I, you know like I put each artist or piece like on a piece of paper and I just kind of like I kind of need like the like the visual map of it it has helped organize my thoughts in like a different way and so yeah for the book in terms of structure that just made the most sense like as I was writing I had each chapter and you know like title working title on a piece of paper and word count and just kind of had it moving around on a pegboard for a long time um you know there's programs now like Scrivener and and things like that that purport to do the same thing on a computer screen um, but I have found them just impossible to use that I really like to see, like, you know, take over a wall or something and just be able to see things, uh, in front exactly. of that. Yeah. And it's a nice constant reminder too, right? Yeah. I gotta write, gotta keep writing. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So I want to ask you a big question now, uh, and we can approach this from multiple angles, but I want to talk about the bigger project, I guess, of thinking about, language, because that's where you really um, have the opportunity and perhaps the power, if we want to put it that way, to change um, your readers thinking about these big ideas like nationhood, belonging, immigration, settlerhood, white supremacy, um, and, I, and to also interrogate your experience as a non-white settler 
and investigate this ongoing process of understanding yourself and, and everyone in Canada as um, a colonial subject. So I wanted to ask you just w- what are your thoughts around how you use language and and its possibilities when you're writing a work like this that could have such a huge impact on on kind of reframing our discourse about ourselves? Uh, well, I mean... When are we outside of language? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I think, are you talking about specifically um, politicized discourse? I guess what I'm asking, well, I mean, you sort of have all these different uh, layers of dealing with language. I mean, for one thing, you are, you're speaking a, a kind of hybrid language with your mother, for example, um, and navigating between two language worlds from your childhood and and your adulthood. Uh, you have a different set of perspectives around insider and outsiderness, depending on where you live and, again, the context. Um, hey, that's okay. Yeah, but sure. also around power and, and politicized language. Like, you know, potentially you have a, a fairly fragile audience reading your material. So to what degree do you sort of... Um, just go for it <laughs> and say things in a very clear, direct way? And, and where do you pull back to kind of bring your readers in gently? Or do you think about those things? I actually don't think about those things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've never thought about um, whether my reader can handle it or not. Um, I, I think that's the reader's autonomy or whether they want to close a book and throw it across a room or... <laughs> going that's up to them mm-hmm. um yeah i think for me um whether that's art criticism or just you know my personality i really value honesty right like i really value honesty because it's actually a lot of work to be honest and you're putting yourself on the line and maybe that's very vulnerable um but like it comes from a place of wanting to do better and care and confusion and all sorts of um, emotions and thoughts. Um, But for me, writing and language, I guess, is a way to work some of those things out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say my approach to language, uh, which, uh, you know, if I'm understanding your question correctly, is uh like i prefer direct and honest language mm-hmm. like why 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 couch it in something that it you know to make it land softer like it you know it's like um you know i still hear the the argument like oh you can't call them a racist because they won't hear you and it's like well you know like why am i protecting the feelings of racists um, who won't hear me? Like, why? Like, what is what is that logic there? Why am I protecting people who don't need to be protected? Right. You know, um, this whole uh, this whole book was about trying to make a small place for myself so that I could feel seen. Hmm. And so, if um, yeah, if it offends people. If it upsets people, 
Um, I don't know if that's me going after them or them being uncomfortable with things that I'm saying, right? There's a difference there. For sure. And, and I think maybe what's more important to me as your reader is that you are making room for the messiness of sorting through these things and the um, places that are blurry and not quite sorted out yet and the process of change that we're going through as we think about these huge issues. Um, and and so I love that, that, that you make room for that in your writing, that there's no clear direction you're going or answer you're providing that it's really a a text of exploration and discovery. Yeah. I'm not trying to tell anyone to think anything Mm -hmm. at all. Like, you know, you can make up your mind. I'm just kind of giving you the facts of what I see. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you can make up your own mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love (laughs) this one little paragraph you have. I mean, there are many moments like this in the book. Um, and I, I can't even remember what exact section this came from, but you say they blink and keep smiling, sometimes chuckling, but still waiting for a response that affirms for them another reality, one where Canada is as pristine as its stolen glacier lakes and where nothing bad has ever happened, at least to them. I think we're doing pretty good, said one woman, who I didn't even slap in the face. <laughs> Just love that. <laughs> because it is pointing to the messiness and yet is really rooting you in that moment and how you feel and and the impact that it has on you yeah that was from the east coast chapter i think okay um and you know like that's funny that line about not even slapping her in the face like that was an improvised line i added during a reading ah. and I was like, oh like i think that uh, i'll just slip that into the text as well <laughs> well that's interesting and and tells you how that um, pressure of doing a reading and the opportunity of doing a reading can can really change your writing Oh, absolutely. Because the whole thing, the thing with this book and with my writing um, in this book is that I, I think it reads best out loud. Hmm. Like I know it's, you know, it's prose, it's nonfiction and people rarely read essays out loud, but like I, I read a lot of poetry. And if you look at um, who I asked to blurb it, it's all poets. Like I, I care about language in that sense. Like it's like, um, yeah, it's, I want it to be uh, image-based. I want it to be clear, but um, I'm not trying to be pedantic about anything. Right. Do you think of it like a conversation too? Mm, maybe. It's more like, it's like, I'm just like pointing at a bunch of stuff. And uh, yeah, sometimes I ask you to think about it too. I don't know. It's a very one-sided conversation. Okay. It's it's really more like a monologue. Okay. Well, it is very inviting. I do feel like I am sitting there with you when I when I read your work. Um, am I reading to you, or am I like, are we having a conversation now? Yeah, you are reading to me <laughs> now that I'm put on the spot about it. It is true. I I feel like. Not so much that it's a performance, but that it's, yeah, I think maybe monologue is the best word, that I'm just there ready to hear you. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, monologues need audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I've never written a book before, so I don't know how they're supposed to go, but it seemed to be, it seemed to work for what I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. So are you working on a new book? I keep saying I am, but I <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, 
I have story ideas that are, you know, like sitting on pieces of paper waiting to be looked at again. But um, I'm, uh, I'm doing a PhD right now. And so I feel like that is sucking up most of my um, writing energy mm-hmm. uh, and thought and thought processes. I don't know if I am able to switch between the two in terms of writing style because, you know, academic writing is a whole other ball game. It's very technical yes. and dry and boring, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is fine to do, but it's like it's like a challenge in a different way. And I enjoy it in a really weird way as well. But um, I don't know if I can write something that I want to publish um, and do the dissertation as well. Yeah, I get that. I think it's it's two different worlds that you inhabit and pulling yourself out of one and going into the other is very jarring. At least it was for me. Yeah, it's pretty consuming, the PhD. So, you know, like I'm happy to be consumed by it. Um, um, you know, like I am, I want to finish, you know, within a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, like the academy, like any institution, has lots of uh, toxic people, has mm-hmm. a lot of funny situations, especially during this time where everyone is suddenly a critical race theorist. <laughs> and so, yeah, like you know, who knows what will come out of it? Right. <laughs> yeah, you'll get some good stories that can come out later. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, the yeah, the Academy is like 20 years behind for some reason. And so like, I'm like, oh, are we still talking about this? Like, it's weird. It is. And I mean, this opens up a whole other topic of conversation that we don't have to get into. But I often wonder if tenure is the root of that, that there's a kind of stasis and comfort that comes with job security for life that allows people to linger in the past and not be responsive. Yeah, tenure needs to be abolished. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's like it makes people completely unaccountable and they can't be fired. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's like the worst possible situation. <laughs> the reason becomes irrelevant and they harass students and faculty alike. It's like, what? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, we, we call it in our circles the tenure lobotomy. <laughs> so <laughs> once you get it, you don't have to think anymore. Part of your brain's removed. Oh, yeah. It's on holiday. Oh, yeah. Uh, Spoken with jealousy, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, why am I in the academy, right? It's just, like, am I going to stay in it? Like, likely not. But, you know, who knows? It's like, I don't know if I have a third act in me. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we come back to um, our last little section here, and you were going to talk about some tips you had uh, just from your life as a working writer, a freelancer, uh, that will help some of our listeners as they navigate some of the same paths. Uh, Yeah, so I was um, saying earlier that the key to writing, whether it's an article or a book or a paper is like very simple is you have to sit down and you have to write like i like i know that sounds like yeah like duh but um (laughs) but it's surprising how many people don't do it and they're surprised and that they don't meet their deadlines or that they can't write but it's like have you sat down and you have you written and they're like no and it's like well like how do you expect these things to be written then (laughs) and so uh, you know like um 
a very simple trick I sometimes have to do to ease myself in is like I, I take my phone, I set a timer for 10 minutes, and I do this in my writing workshop as well, where I just like, okay, like, we're just going to write pen to paper, not a keyboard, pen to paper. And for 10 minutes straight, you have to just write. Like, whatever happened, whatever comes out, you just write. Like, give yourself a prompt. It can be anything. You know, you can deviate from it. But the rule is you cannot stop. You cannot cross things out. You just barf. <laughs> and 10 minutes, if that's all you got for your day, fine. But often, you know, once you start writing, you keep writing. Hmm. And, you know, like, you don't have to write for eight hours a day. That's impossible. I do maximum three to four hours of that kind of work a day and spend the rest of that, you know, work day doing other things. Because there's no way you can push yourself that much. I mean, for me, at least. So know your limits. Um, but writing a little bit every day is um, essential to finishing a piece of writing. It's like, duh. But most people <laughs> won't do it. And uh, do you have any tricks for people who can't even get there, who can't sit down and just start? Is there any way that you could sort of fool yourself into doing it or, or good prompts uh, like websites or books or things that you like? Um, I go for walks. Mm. I really just like cannot sit still. I go for a walk. And I, you know, I'm, I don't try and force it. I really try and think about something else. Um, but... I um, I do try and um, give myself a question, you know, like like of, like that's related to what I'm trying to work through, you know. Like usually it's like like the block that you can't quite answer, mm-hmm. and so you know, like either you write that question out or you just say it to yourself, say it out loud to yourself in the mirror, whatever. Just like you know, like give it some tangibility, and then go do something else. Whether it's you go for a walk, you go bake a cake, you know, go play with a dog, whatever. But like, you have to like release it and then come back to it. Mm -hmm. Usually walking is the best because how I I, I was told once, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, the, the, the pace of your brain is a pace of um, your writing or something Mm -hmm. like by, by hand. You can only write as fast as you think. Interesting. Um, I don't know if that's true because everyone writes on keyboards now, but I do prefer to write by hand for the first draft because it flows a lot better. I don't feel like I'm catching up with myself or out of breath. Hmm. Because when you write on keyboards, sometimes I feel like you get ahead of yourself and then you forget your train of thought. Right. Uh, Whereas with pen, you're always like, it's like, yeah, steadier pace. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's this program where you write for 20 minutes at a time and you stop and stop for 15 minutes. Like, I honestly, like, writing is rewriting, but writing is also not writing. Right. Oh, there's a great text by Anne Boyer called Not Writing. Hmm. Um, that is really good. Yeah, it's all about the inputs as much as the output. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was wonderful. I, I've, you know, long been a fan of yours and really enjoyed talking to you. I think your work is important and every Canadian should read it. And it's so great to talk to you about craft, right? It's really um, at the core of, of everything you do. And so nice to hear your thoughts on it. Oh, thanks. Have we talked, have we mentioned the book's title? We have not. Would you like to? Uh, you, go, you go for it, yeah. 
<laughs> the title of the book is Before I Was a Critic, I Was a Human Being. Um, and do you want to like maybe talk about the uh, the title a little bit? Uh, it was it was a series of talks I started giving around 2013. Okay, that uh, it just it kind of stuck. Okay, um, and yeah, it was. It felt like I like long, ridiculous titles, and it seems just just ridiculous enough. <laughs> it's very enticing. It was certainly what made me pick up the book. I thought, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, all of us. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, thanks so much, Amy. It was, as I said, wonderful to talk to you and great to hear your thoughts on writing. Thank you very much for the invitation. I hope this is of some use to someone out there. Oh, I'm sure it will be. Thanks again. If you're interested in writing nonfiction, the University of King's College MFA in Creative Nonfiction might be for you. Find out more at ukings.ca slash MFA. And if you'd like to hear more book-related conversations, check out Bookings, the podcast of our friends at the King's Co-op Bookstore. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Emmy Fung for speaking with us. Her latest book, Before I Was a Critic, I Was a Human Being, is available from Artspeak and BookHug. Further Reading is produced by the University of King's College MFA Program in Creative Nonfiction. Our editors are Kirsten DePina and Samantha Hepperly. Music by Pete Johnston. Graphics by Mike Smith. I'm your host, Jillian Turnbull. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.